If you want to know more about depression from a physiological, from a scientific, and from a personal viewpoint, then you need look no further than today's book. Welcome one and all, mere mortals, to another book review. I'm Kyron, and today I have the book for you, The Noonday Demon by Andrew Solomon, with the subtitle An Anatomy of Depression, although I have read in some other versions, it's An Atlas of Depression. This book was published in 2001, and it's part memoir and part tome. And if you don't know what a tome is, a tome is basically a word for a huge collection of data, of scientific, of scholarly work. And this book is pretty close to that because it is a bloody thick book. Although it was published only 20 years ago, it does feel like it could be slightly dated. And so I do know there are some versions of this book, uh, the 2015 onwards, I believe, which have some additional information about the treatment of depression, which has changed since his knowledge back in 2001. I'm going to give a little bit of a chapter breakdown right at the start bit here because this book is so thick that I can't cover everything in the more detailed sections that come later. So there are 12 chapters in in total and each chapter is about 30 to 40 pages. And I think if you take everything, including the notes and bibliography, it gets to 560, but the actual reading part is about 444 pages. So I'm going to go through a couple of the, well, all of the the chapter titles and give a little bit of an explanation of them. So he starts off with a, a note on the method. So why he wrote this book, how he went about it, and some of the just technical details, such as changing people's names, such as um, how he uses quotations and whatnot. The first chapter is depression. So what is depression? A bit of an explanation of the subject in general. The second is breakdowns. This is more of his personal experience suffering with depression and what he personally took away from it, but also some of a comparison between other people and how they experience it. Third is treatment. So this is getting into the more objective what you can do in the time. So it's talking about antidepressants um, and all those sorts of scientific things that you can sort of go to a hospital to use number four alternative so this is this things that are maybe a little bit outside of the science so this is talking about things like saint john's wort this is talking about maybe some of the lifestyle impacts that aren't fully scientifically proven to be like hey you absolutely need to do this the fifth is the population so this is starting to look into the statistics of What type of people get it? What's the difference between men and women? What's the difference between, let's say, Africans and Europeans or Asians or Caucasians or whatever it may be, Uh, as well as populations not related to um, sex or or race. There's, There's other populations to look at. The sixth is addiction. So this is talking about the link between the different types of drugs that are available, such as alcohol, caffeine, nicotine, the opiates, methamphetamines, you know, all of those different types and how that cycle of abuse and with depression sort of links together. Halfway through, so we're coming on to number seven and number seven is a doozy, suicide. So suicide is obviously an absolutely terrible thing and depression plays such a huge part in it because it's usually not the super happy people, the super well put together people who are suffering from it. No, it's more people experience a mental breakdown who are in a deep and dark place who need to somewhat escape. And so he talks about all the different types of thought process, but also statistics on suicide. This chapter was pretty hard to read. I didn't particularly enjoy that. 
Number eight, history. So this is going over through how depression was viewed from ancient times into now and looking a little bit about how much it changes. And I'm going to talk about this later because this is a interesting point that I really took out from this book. Number nine, poverty. So I talked about this in the Grapes of Wrath, the link between poverty, despair, and I suppose the connection with despair and and depression and how all of these things link link up and in particular poverty. And poverty does play a, a huge role in the cultivation of depression almost. Number 10, politics. Now this book was written in the United States. So it's looking more at how the United States deals with depression on a, I suppose, a society wide level. So looking at it in a much broader context and saying, what sort of treatments are we doing as a whole? What are the ways that we want to tackle this subject with related to um, you know, particular groups of people? So this might be talking about veterans. This might be talking about people with existing other illnesses. This might be talking about the general population. Number 11, evolution. This is talking a little bit about the causes of depression, what actually makes it happen and looking at it from an evolutionary standpoint. And that's a real murky territory, uh, as well as some of the genetic influences, environmental influences, all of that. Before finally ending up with he number 12, hope. So this is talking about his personal thoughts on on depression as as a whole as why he has some high hopes for the future why what are the problems that are we're still facing and and when he when i say still facing these are problems that i've carried forward from 20 years ago it's i don't think there's been a a huge transformational shift between 2001 and 2021 where we're in now Uh, and then the final is obviously the bibliography which is really extensive uh, his notes, the index, all of that sort of good stuff. So this book is just huge. It's a huge book. Get ready for it. So someone who wrote a big book like this must love to write. And so Andrew Solomon is actually a writer. And much of this book, I believe, was published in the form of an editorial or in newspapers and in magazines, and then also was converted into a book. But it doesn't really have that magazine feel for it because these are so long chapters it's it more feels like if he did use it he used it as a base and then just expanded upon it so it doesn't have that feel of some other books which have been such as the Dalai Lama's ones which have been converted from a a speech and then into a text or anything like that the book itself really dives into I suppose a lot of different paths so there's his personal experiences which he goes very in depth into and I suppose the subjective stuff so this is more stories from other people these are feelings these are sentiments emotions so this gives you a bit of a feel for what depression is and then there's the more objective stuff which there there can still be some stories so it can be like objective stories from a doctor you know still hard to say how objective that really is but also related to statistics and you, you might say, oh, statistics, those are definitely objective. But once again, not particularly because some statistics are non-repeatable. Some statistics are used by people to really show their point of view. So he was making it very clear. I'm using statistics that have been repeated ad nauseum that are pretty well peer reviewed and are unlikely to change with time. The final point was his reason for writing the book. And that also plays a part in what the book is about because it's not just a book about the information, although I would say that's the most of it. He is also trying to provide this information with the purpose of destigmatizing it. So he's going to talk at least some parts about why 
depression shouldn't be treated uh, in such a certain way. And these are more his personal opinions. And his personal opinion is right through the book. So if you want something purely scientific, this is not the book for you, but it does have a lot of real good science and objective things in it. Instead of my normal process of splitting it into themes, the main theme of this book is depression. So I want to talk about what the dividation, the dividing that I feel was already there, which was the more objective stuff and the more subjective stuff. So I'll go with the objective things first and I'm going to have to use and look at my notes here because there's just so much to talk about. The more objective facts. So we'll start with the treatment. So the treatment split is roughly in two modalities he, he talks about. So there's the verbal therapy. So this is things such as CBT and another one, which is IPT, which I'd never heard about before, which was interpersonal therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. These are the talking ones. So these are going to a therapist using that. It seems somewhat magical to condense things in your head, spill them out as words, have someone relate to them and that can help you. It's it's such a weird process, but it certainly does have effects and there's there's absolutely no doubt that using verbal therapies uh, work. And then there's the more, I'm not going to say invasive, but the more physical interventions. So these are using the pharmacological ways of, of intervening uh, with the body's own circuitry and chemical Im- imbalances, I suppose you'd call them, as well as some of the electrical stuff in the brain. So this is using electric convulsive therapy, I believe is what it's called. Antidepressants play a big role in this book and he talks about the stigma particularly related to them but also how they can be abused on a more society-wide level and and what's getting the right mix of balance between them so that's getting into the more subjective stuff uh, but he does talk about very strictly what these actually do how it's related to serotonin so the SSRIs the sort of science behind that uh, and then also just what antidepressants do not chemically, not only chemically, but physically and mentally for a person. We've already talked about ECT in another book, and I would actually recommend that book, um, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, as for knowledge on what ECT is and I suppose how it how it works and how it feels to a person, the effects that can come from that. That book's, once again, more a personal story. So he does talk here about the strict things of what you can get from ECT in terms of benefits, but then also the well-known side effects of the uh, just unable inability to form long-term memories or your short-term memory starts going shot, the way your body reacts to it, all these sorts of just negative outcomes that come from it. There's a couple of ones which are similar to ECT, but uh, don't involve all of these negative effects. And I believe use less sort of voltage going directly into the brain. So this is the transcranial magnetic stimulation. And there's two types of this, the repeated trans, transcranial mag, magnetic stimulation or RT, RTMS or TDCS, which is the transcranial direct current, current stimulation. I don't particularly know the differences between the two, but There are a couple of different ways and he talks about that in here. There's the more alternative stuff. So St. John's wort and what that actually can do and help a person. There's things such as light therapy. So addressing the big connection there is between sleep and poor sleep and depression and how depression messes up your sleep and then your sleep being messed up leads to more depression and personal anecdote here as well the the time that I felt a a mild depression in my life was definitely when 
my sleep, I was working in the mines and my sleep was shot. I was switching between day shift, night shift, absolutely terrible for your body. And then there's the final sort of lifestyle one. So this is what we all know we need to do, exercise, eat healthy, have good relationships between friends, you know, get enough sunlight and vitamin D, all of those sorts of things and how those are more preventative measures, I think more than more than cures and fixes, but they do play a part in the cure and fixing as well. So depression and substance abuse. And if you've made it this far, <laughs> I got to tell you there's more to come. This is a, a long book and a long subject. So uh, I'm going to try and do it justice and cover as much as I can. So the substance and cycle abuse, uh, cyclical abuse there is between depression and substances. And what was really interesting I found was that there are, I guess you'd call them different types of depression. So it's, it's such a blanket term that we just throw out, but there are different ways. There's the more melancholic depression. So this is someone who's listless and not able to do many things. There's the more depression, more like the type of Kay Redfield Jameson in her book, An Unquiet Mind, where it's a manic depression. They've got to do all these crazy things. And then there's a like a mania and anxiety to it. Uh, anxiety is another one that's a you can sort of have a depression caused by anxiety and then when you start adding drugs into all of this oh god man the complex it just gets so complex so I'll, I'll talk with a couple of them that I can remember off the top of my head so it was found that nicotine in particular can have some calming effects but um, nicotine and caffeine didn't really play that big a part in the depression other than slightly changing your lifestyle. Um, the ones that were more dangerous were such as alcohol, which get right into the head as well. And you can actually treat some depressions with these sorts of drugs. So if you have a more anxious type of depression, even though alcohol is depressive in nature, you will actually become more depressive taking alcohol if it's it's also anxiety reducing. So if your anxiety, maybe, you know, if the benefits of payoff is, is good enough, it reduces your anxiety so much, the depressive effects won't actually hurt as much. So he has a couple of stories in the book of people who are almost self-medicated with alcohol or with cocaine or with amphetamines or whatever it is, and they found a nice balance between that and their particular type of depression. On the whole, though, if you're taking drugs and whether it be legal or the illegal stuff, it's going to play havoc and it seems like it just adds extra complexity to the situation. Doesn't seem to really be good general advice to say, you know, try cocaine, try heroin, try whatever if you have depression because it's probably just going to make the problem a lot, lot worse. I mentioned previously, but the suicide chapter is particularly brutal. So I'm going to go there now and just read off a couple of the statistics that were, I suppose, pertinent and that I found you know, not interesting, but they they had something in them. So suicide, to quote, suicide statistics are even more chaotic than depression statistics. People most often commit suicides on Mondays. Suicides are most prevalent between later morning and noon. The preferred season for suicide is springtime. Women have a high rate of suicide during the first and last weeks of the menstrual, menstrual cycle. So this this area as well was where it was like, yes, there's definitely sort of objective facts but is it you know correlation does not equal causation so is it mondays due to actually something maybe because that's you're like oh i have to go back to my shit work that that's sort of like a obvious thing that comes to mind but maybe it's not due to that maybe it's more due to 
what happened on the weekend and you've got you know more time spent with your family and you hate your family so that's what causes more suicide once again it's just such a complex 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 issue uh, poverty as well so poverty and and what poverty does with depression so i talked about this a little bit in the grapes of wrath the poverty sort of leads to despair and despair leads to depression is is a, a little causal chain and this is talked about in this book as well in that if you are in poverty you are more likely to get depression now what can you actually do about that well obviously lifting people out of poverty would be nice but that is not the sole determinant as well and so this is getting on to more the causes what actually causes uh, depression and it seems to be obviously like most things it's a mix between the genetics and environments and it seems to be roughly 40 percent genetics and then 40 percent would be the environment so there are certain gene types and certain types of people and this is getting into the populations certain people are more likely at risk such as women are i think twice as likely to get depression as men so obviously that's a huge one right there but then there's also things related to abuse and the cycles of people who experience abuse are more more and more likely to get depression later in their life or even it can occur in kids um, it can occur really it seems to be like the great leveler depression can occur in just about anyone of any creed race gender religion like it does not matter this thing can come after you and if it's coming after you like you know strap yourself in because you're in for a wild ride the final side of this in the object more objective realm is that evolutionarily speaking it is really hard to explain and he had a whole chapter on it but i came away from it thinking like man we have no idea why it why it's really in us there are some theories such as it can be used by people to solicit more help so perhaps if someone is really in need of desperate help they have depression and then this can get more resources coming to them from the tribe from people and he said yes this does happen this has happened to me and has happened to others there's others who say depression is more a form of sort of like pessimistic type of thinking and if you're in if you experience a depression back maybe back in the day this is the thing that stopped you from going out and trying to fight a lion or trying to fight whatever once again doesn't seem to be super solid there's other theories related to sleep and how it's sort of almost like a hibernation type thing so maybe if you're not getting enough sleep depression is like almost a way of kicking in and forcing your body to shut down which sort of also makes sense you know people who are depressed are more likely to be apathetic they'll stay in bed they won't go out they won't expend as much energy there's even ones related to the brain and communication and saying depression is almost a consequence of of having the ability to be conscious and conscious of oneself and it's sort of like splitting the brain in two and having the two sides of the brain talking to each other will cause depression all of these theories for me i took out of it no nah, there's, there's, there's nothing really in there i i don't think we know why depression really exists from a, a standpoint evolutionary speaking and we can see in some of the history sides that it has been around for a long time as well. So let's get into the more subjective sides now. And this is where it gets an even more depressive, more darker turn. And this is related more to some of the stories that occur through the book. And then also just some of the points, the notes that the author makes, Andrew Solomon. And he interviewed a whole bunch of people for this book. And 
God damn it. Some people are broken from the get-go. They do not have a chance at all. Some just absolutely horrifying stories of, you know, there was a girl who was a um, a sister in a family of, of seven siblings, never got hugged by her family and whatnot, experienced abuse at home, was raped when she was 13 years old and just experienced like one tragedy after the other, just bam, 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 all in a row. And you, you see these people and they... They're trying to help themselves out. They're trying to do the best they can. And some of them, you know, there are some miracle stories. He talks about them of people who are up to, you know, the age of 38 or something and just have absolute shit lives. And then with a bit of outside help, with a bit of impetus from other people, they manage to, you know, get find work. They manage to lose some weight. They manage to fix some relationships. They manage to jettison other relationships to quit their addiction. And then there's other people who just, they're in it for the long haul. They're, they're going to have a shit life sort of no matter what. One particularly moving story was of a, I believe it was in Korea, a young sort of Korean, maybe it was like a Korean American who had cerebral palsy and was just constantly racked with pain, constantly had nothing to live for. He himself was saying, I've never really experienced joy in my life. Unfortunately, due to his condition as well, he doesn't even have the possibility of attempting suicide. And it's weird saying that, unfortunately, but reading this, you think, man, you you, you almost wish he did have the possibility of, of being able to end his life because the story that he tells of how bad it was of his whole life makes you think maybe it's not a good thing that he's living. Maybe suicide in this sort of option uh, would would be the better thing very very hard to tell and then this drags us right into the ethics so i'll talk a little bit about the politics section now so this was mainly related to the us but i was talking about i think the main question from that is helping people who don't want to be helped so there are there's something weird goes on where depression will drag you into such a state where you can't rationally think and so you don't have the ability to see over the next hill, you know, what that valley could look like, that green, nice pasture when all you're faced is this, you know, terrifying mountain ahead of you. And so he's got plenty of examples of people who were almost involuntarily forced into a a mental hospital or a home of some sort, receiving medication they did not want to take that gave them side effects they did not want to feel. But came through this bad period and said afterwards, man, I'm really glad that helped me. I'm glad I was forced to do this because I would still be in that same place now. Then there are others who almost, you say, are they there by choice or are they there involuntarily? Because there are some people who want to be in that place. It's almost like they're destroying themselves whether that be through a good reason or not. Maybe they've done something bad in their lives. Maybe that reason is just self-destructiveness just appeared in their mind. What about those people? Do you voluntarily, you know, lock them up almost in a case and put them in a mental hospital of some sort and force feed them pills and drugs? Do you stop them from harming themselves? You know, there's so many, so many questions related to ethics and 
what we should do and think about even how we should just think about depression so depression what is it what actually is this feeling is it you know what's the difference between feeling sad and feeling depressed well sadness is something we all know that's sort of almost a daily occurrence in in many ways and depression i believe you know it depends on where you're getting diagnosed it's something along the lines of abnormal reaction over an extended period i think longer than two weeks is one figure i saw in the book and just being bandied about in general and then what's the difference between that and grief for example so obviously you're going to feel bad after a parent passes away or a loved one or you're you've been broken up with and whatever you know what's the difference between grief and depression well obviously we we feel grief that seems normal but then that has a rational explanation and depression seems to not have a rational explanation but what about those people in the middle who maybe they get in a small car accident and you'd say oh it was just a fender bender like nothing really happened but maybe for them that whole experience brings up other things from their life so they're experiencing depression and you say "Mm, that's not a rational explanation they should maybe get on ssris or whatever but maybe it is rational and it's just god damn this is such a minefield of of questions of dilemmas and how do you even begin to say what is depression and what is not depression and this question is not answered through history either the history of depression has been constantly changing and it goes back to you know the ancient greeks they've talked about it and it's had different names melancholy it's had you know the blues downs whatever it is the the type the the feeling i believe you can sort of trace throughout the ages and also the reactions to it on on a treatment scale and on a perceptive scale or sort of like stigma scale of what it is changes as well so Back in the Greek day, they were talking about the, you know, the black um, bee list, the, the stuff inside that, the black bile, stuff inside that is a chemical, more of a chemical thing. And then there's others who started saying, no, it's more of an electrical thing. It's in the brain. Then there's others saying, you know, this is just shows weak constitution. It's people who mentally don't have it together and that this is, you know, suffering and pain that's being caused by uh, for sinning and things like that and it it seems to just change throughout the ages and even you, you might think oh those ignorant people of the past but it's still happening today there's still people who will argue no depression is more of a weakness of character others who are saying no it's more of a, ca- a chemical imbalance and then others who are saying no this is related to the brain it's an electrical thing and it really seems to be all of them it's not just one it's bloody all of them in some ages it's been celebrated as well and some it's been maligned so in some ages such as let's just say during the john keats type era where it was this sentimental feeling and emotion it was almost like a thing for the upper class to feel sentimental and feel this depression it was celebrated it was like wow look at this thing it's it's sort of cool in a way uh, and then other eras it's it's maligned and you know it's that's related to the sinning, the the death, the um, bad things happening. So it's so weird just how much it changes and how the perception of it changes across time as well. So we're getting deeper and deeper and we're, we're coming towards the end, people. So please hold on. <laughs> My personal observations and I guess some takeaways. 
this book is real and it is raw and it's very open. The author talks about some really harrowing experiences. Uh, Andrew in particular talks about his experiences. So just to list a couple and there's the death of his mother and her eventual death by suicide um, as she was dying from cancer, a very moving story about her, her deathbed and how that affected him. His personal three attacks with depression and how he experienced his first one, his second one, and then his third one, writing this book on depression, experiences another depressive episode. Very, very uh, harrowing to hear his personal stales. And then getting into the bad stuff where he went on this self-destructive path of being a bug chaser. If you don't know what that is, it's related to AIDS and contracting AIDS voluntarily. Uh, you know, absolutely like real sick state of mind you have to be in to to want to do that. And then even his stories of committing spousal abuse. Um, I'm not sure if he's very clear if it's with a, a man or a woman because um, he is uh, bisexual. And But just talking about this, all of these things, and he is goddamn like open and raw. Some of these things you, you, you'd struggle to say to your closest family members and friends, let alone the world in large in this huge book. So uh, mad props to, to Andrew for, for being so open, even if some of those um, acts he's committed are pretty, you know, disgraceful. And he himself would admit that they were committed in a, in a time where he was not fully capable of, of, na- of rational thinking, I would say. The topic is super complex, but one thing Andrew does is really, I suppose, highlight the ethical complexities and, really talk about the objective facts, lays them out, and then makes it very clear of what his subjective opinions are. And I like that dividing point between the two of them. And I think he also treats it really fairly. He gives, I want to say both sides of the arguments, but it's more like a a triangle or a star because there's so many different inputs coming from different ways and different people thinking about depression that I think he does a pretty good job of of collecting, collating them and showing them and then giving his personal opinion as well. So um, I really like that style of the book in that it wasn't, it didn't get the, I didn't get the feeling of, you know, a hard nose, this is what depression is, trying to force it down your throat or, or even push his opinion too hard. It was more of a exploration of all of these things. My takeaway as well is that I would recommend people to be in a good place before reading this book. I noticed because it's so long, I have read it over three weeks. I, I noticed, I would say, a significant mood drop while reading this book uh, just because reading it is not particularly cathartic. And he talks about this as well, how people are asking, oh, writing a book about depression, was that cathartic for you? And he was saying, no, no, this is raw. It, it hurt the whole time I was doing this. I was not enjoying it hearing these other people's stories of their problems, their pains, that that empathy overload was not making him feel good. And it, I would say the same for me. Like it didn't make me feel good, but it's useful in some ways. We come to the end, we come to the summary and it is a moving and a dense read. It's just so, so heavy. It sort of felt like a Wikipedia article in a way in the sense of just how long it is. And if you go onto the wikipedia article for depression you'll see he talks about most of the things that are encountered in it 
But then with the additional resources of, I guess, the more subjective stuff. So with the narrator telling the story, with personal observations, with more questions of ethics thrown into it. I would say it gives you basically all the information you really want to know about depression uh, without going too deep into the science. Uh, And you will come away more informed, but I would say just as uncertain as you were maybe going into it because there's no one size fits all treatment. There's no one size fits all. This is what you should do. This is how you should think about this topic. So complex. Um, So you'll, you'll learn a lot, but it might not be particularly useful in clearing up your mind about the topic of depression. Even though this book is starting to get on in years, 20 years old and the science changed, I would say it's still a definitely worth the, the pain of reading. Uh, even just for the subjective parts, because he is a very good storyteller. So he does tell that experience of what depression is like. And that's what I really took away from this book, I would say, is some of the treatments, some of the interesting statistics and whatnot. But the feeling tone of it, I feel like I really have a, a much greater understanding of what someone would feel like going through depression. Obviously, I haven't felt it for myself uh, in that extreme level of what he's talking about being so apathetic you can barely move your bed unable to even turn on the shower and have a shower that sort of level but yeah wow just a a a huge book and mad props to andrew for it so i'm giving the noonday demon a seven and a half out of ten uh a dense read a really really dense and heavy read So mere mortals, we've come to the end of another book review and I want to thank you for joining me this far. If you'd like to hear more book reviews, hit the follow button on whatever platform it is you're listening on. Or if you want to interact with us, come to our Instagram at mere mortals podcast. Other than that, I hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are in the world. Kyron out.